Welcome back, everyone. It's Mother's Day, and I could have done something about animal moms. After all, I did write a book called Raised by Animals. But no, this week, it's all about volcanoes. And not just about eruptions, of which there have been two significant ones recently. The truth is, there is so much interesting history surrounding how people cope and live around such a potentially dangerous natural phenomenon, and the societal factors that shape who is impacted, who recovers, and who doesn't when there's an eruption. To tell us about all of that is a brilliant scientist, Dr. Jasmine Scarlett. She's a historical and social volcanologist. This is going to be a great show. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. On March 19th, Iceland had a shield volcano erupt, Fagradalsfjall. This is happening at this particular volcano for the first time in 800 years, which, to be honest, is nothing in geological time. Before it erupted, it was preceded by 50,000 little earthquakes. A few short weeks later, another eruption, preceded again by earthquakes, started a continent away, and the difference between them couldn't be more dramatic. La Soufrière the stratovolcano on St. Vincent and the Grenadines, another island, rumbled to life on April 9th. Unlike in Iceland, almost 20,000 people were in imminent danger on the northern slopes of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And as you'll hear from my guest, historical and social volcanologist Dr. Jasmine Scarlett, It's not just because they're different volcanoes that present a fundamentally different level of risk. The hazard level for those on St. Vincent and the Grenadines is also linked to proximity. In this episode, Dr. Jasmine Scarlett shares her research on the historical societal factors from slavery to colonial racism that have shaped the experience of so many that live near this active and quite dangerous volcano. The really important thing to remember is that it's still active and it's still creating a problem and we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. So if you want to help, you can find links to donate supplies, money, whatever is needed on the show notes, which you can find on my website, jenniferverdelin.com or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. All right, let's get on with the show. Dr. Jasmine Scarlett, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, This is going to be really a a great show uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, Before we kind of start, I I really love to have listeners know who my guests are. So would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, so um, as mentioned, I'm Dr. Jasmine Scarlett, and I'm a historical and social volcanologist, which 
uh, basically means that I research how people live with volcanoes in the past and the present to try and inform what might happen in the future. And I've mainly focused on uh, Caribbean and European volcanoes. Um, but who knows what will happen in the future, where it will go next. Um, but I'm also interested in um, kind of like heritage studies, um, also disaster studies, kind of like relating it to concepts and theories, hazard analysis in general, and also kind of like um, science communication and outreach pedagogy. We, we intersect on, on some of those uh, places, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you. And I'm curious, and I think, you know, so the, the audience here is sort of just your general public. And I think um, they never really get to hear how people get interested in the certain things that they study and, and how we end up on our paths. So do, do you mind sharing a little bit about how you came to be interested and pursue this line of, of, of research and study? Yes. So um, in the UK, in terms of the education system, we don't actually have a well-defined earth science curriculum. So in school, I learned about volcanoes and other natural hazards in geography. And geography was one of my favorite subjects because I just really found it fascinating, um, just how the, how the world works and how we fit in that. And I particularly was interested in natural hazards because I was just really fascinated how those are, you know, natural processes that happen and like, just like, I just found it so fascinating how a hurricane works, for example, and how we have hurricane seasons, like how they happen every year and year and how we have volcanic eruptions that like every now and then erupt. And I just really found just the whole concept of natural hazards really interesting. And so I wanted to learn more. So I uh, went to do an undergraduate degree in geography and natural hazards at Coventry University. And that's where I learned about physical geography, human geography and disaster management. So it was actually quite a really comprehensive kind of like a program. And then near the end of this, I was like, I'm not ready to go to work yet. Uh, I want to learn more. So uh, I was just so interested in natural hazards. It's like, I really want to do like a master's program on natural hazards. Um, and this is when I actually started talking to my family, just be like, I'm interested in natural hazards. Like, is this a good thing to do sort of thing? And then it was my my mum who said that, oh, you should talk to your granddad because he comes from a volcanic island in the Caribbean. And I was like, what? So <laughs> I was like 21, 22, and I had no idea. Um, and it's this whole thing that if you don't, if you don't ask, they don't tell kind of like situation. So like, I just thought my granddad just like grew up in the UK. Like I didn't know he actually came from the Caribbean. So I was speaking to him and he actually was told me about this really beautiful volcano called Lasso Frere on St. Vincent and the Grenadines and telling me what he did when he was growing up. Um, he was a shark catcher. <laughs> and he, and then he came over to the UK during the Windrush um, kind of era. And I just found it all fascinating, particularly the volcano, and particularly the last eruption that happened in 1979, before, of course, what's happening today. And I was just like, this is so cool. I really want to learn more about this volcano. So that inspired me to do uh, a master's in volcanology and geological hazards at Lancaster University. And that's definitely where I kind of like shone through, like really defined that, you know, this this is the hazards, this is the natural processes I want to focus on. I really was interested in the geohazards, but particularly volcanoes. And from the dissertation, 
I actually designed the projects myself, kind of like taking what I was learning in undergrad in terms of disaster management stuff. So I did the volcanic risk perception study on La Sofrera in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And basically that is a mixture of volcanology, disaster management, and kind of like social psychology, mm-hmm. just to kind of find out how people view the volcano and the attitudes around the volcano and think about their like preparedness and stuff like that. And this is very strange. So I did this in 2014, no idea what would happen today. And so that was kind of like an eye opener for me because that was the first time I actually went to the Caribbean to St. Vincent by myself. And I stayed with family friends because my family's from St. Vincent. And I, that was just great. But the, it was the same situation again. It's like, I don't want to go into work just yet. <laughs> I want to learn more about this volcano. So I uh, was looking for PhD programs. And uh, the PhD programs I was looking for, they were kind of like had well-defined projects. But I was fortunate enough that there was this project that came up at University of Hull where I got to design my PhD project, basically. So I got to choose the volcano and I was basically like, La Safra. <laughs> and um, essentially that's what I um, did during my PhD. I learned more about the historical kind of like eruptions and how that interacted with society and also kind of just in general, just reconstructing these events and what happened. And yeah, that, got me to my got me my PhD um and yeah so that was kind of like my journey kind of like me being like well not ready yet to go into the real world (laughs) and just just my curiosity of volcanoes and La Sofrera in particular and we're going to talk about what's happening in La Sofrera in in just a little bit and you know it's it's wonderful because I think some people never find that that area that they're really passionate about. And it's clear, you know, from listening to you that you are really passionate about what you do. And as a fellow, you know, scientist who's followed my own curiosities, I completely, um, uh, it resonates with me thoroughly. Like, "Mm, I think I really just want to dig into this more. Like (laughs) I'm not ready to like formally, I don't know. I I still haven't tried to be in the real world of, you know, some job. It's more like (laughs) this. And this is the benefit and advantage. Um, There are several disadvantages to being a researcher and scientist. Um, But one of them is that you get to pursue these avenues of curiosity and inquiry. And, And that now, without necessarily knowing this would happen, can have such a huge impact for for people given what's happening now. Before we zoom in on St. Vincent and what's happening there today, um, I think that someone like me doesn't know much of anything about volcanoes, right? I know stuff from the movies. I have a feeling (laughs) I don't have a good grasp of the reality of volcanoes. Mm -hmm. So if if it'd be all right, um, could we get a little primer on on sort of volcanoes? Like, what is a volcano? There's apparently different types. Um, (laughs) and, uh, And what are some of the misperceptions that people have about volcanoes? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so, Volcanology 101. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so a volcano is essentially a, a, geo, it's a geological um, landform. 
that the Earth creates is basically the magma from deep within the Earth just comes to the surface and erupts as lava. And over many, many eruptions, over millions and thousands of years, it builds up these kind of landforms and it forms like the volcanoes that we that we can see and what we know of. So um, it has a different types. So you've got your classical kind of like big, like steep um, volcanoes. These are called stratovolcanoes or composite volcanoes. Um, and these are ones that produce kind of like these, they can produce kind of like big eruptions, like these big ash plumes and expel, um, eject lots of ash, lots of volcanic material called what we call tephra. And they can, some can also produce lava flows as well. It's not, not every stratovolcano can do that, but uh, quite a few can. Another type that you might be familiar with is shield volcanoes. So these are ones like Hawaii, the ones in Hawaii and Kilauea, and the ones happening in Iceland currently as well. I still don't know how to pronounce it. Um, give me a year. <laughs> I've got it. Um, I've got it. I'll, I'll, I'll teach it to you. We'll do oh, that. Oh, great. Yes. <laughs> um, so basically these ones are a bit different. They don't produce kind of like these ash columns that we um, know that stratovolcanoes do. They kind of do more kind of these lava flows, like really big lava flows and kind of like what we call lava fountains as well. So these like kind of big columns of lava basically being shot out. And these ones are basically, so we come, come into like lava types as well. So shield volcanoes, they mainly produce what we call basalt lavas. So these are the more runny, kind of like low viscosity flows. Whereas stratovolcanoes, they kind of, so um, it kind of ranges from like basaltic andesite to andesite to even like higher viscosity levels. And it's really down to just basically how the um, chemistry of these flows are and kind of like the composition of them as well. And also gas is very important in terms of um, what kind of explosion you and what kind of eruption you get. So there's different types of eruptions, right? <laughs> so uh, the one with the lowest viscosity are called Hawaiian flows because they're actually just two Kilauea and the volcanoes in Hawaii. And these are the more like lava fountains and like really extensive lava flows. And we have different types of lava as well. Um, the really runny one is called Pahoehoe and that's a Hawaiian word that means um, paddled water because these lava flows produce these really beautiful kind of like ripples when they're like um when like the crust kind of like the top layer kind of like harden over into a crust but then it's still flowing underneath so you get kind of these kind of like like lovely like kind of ripple effects then we get kind of like what we call aha which is another hawaiian words another type of hawaiian lava and these are more a little bit more viscous they're a bit more they kind of look like kind of like rubble kind of like that flows kind of thing and then you can get like um, even higher ones called like blocky lava so they're just big, like big chunks of lava that kind of just like flow and then you can even get something higher called ascidian flows so these are basically volcanic glass flows they're very bizarre and are very rare but we have actually document evidence of those as well so those are different types of lava that produce but um we'd have a, another type of an eruption called um Palinian eruption so this is actually what we think is actually happening now at la sofrea volcano and these are kind of more like episodes of like explosions kind of like but 
and then these produce kind of like different types of hazards. I'll go into the hazards later. <laughs> There's loads of different types, basically, and like loads of different types when it comes to volcanoes. Uh, but if we think about like at the higher end scale, we have these kind of like subplinian, plinian, and ultraplinian eruptions. These are the really bad ones. So, um, Pelinin is the uh, named after uh, Pelinin the Younger, who described the 79 AD eruption of Vesuvius. Mm-hmm. So these are produced really big ash columns and ash plumes that spread ash really far, and it they, if they could be if they're big enough, they can even kind of like that ash can get into the atmosphere, the ash and gas can in the atmosphere, and it can actually temporarily impact our climate. It can cause a cooling effect. Uh, which is kind of counteractive because people think it actually cause a heating effect, but it actually does the opposite. But that only happens for like one to two to three to four years. It doesn't stay um, in the atmosphere for long. Um, so those are the ones you have to be really worried about. But these um, kind of like Pelinian type eruptions, these are definitely what you would kind of get at like stratovolcanoes. Um, other types of um, volcanoes, you get these uh, what we call well, so different terms, different things, but maybe people are familiar with the term supervolcanoes. We would actually say, uh, so these are, very, this is actually a rather kind of like term that's just been coined like recently. Okay. Um, and it is kind of like, is to like, kind of like related to like the potential of Yellowstone. But um, it's interesting because we would describe these as kind of like caldera, forming eruptions and caldera eruptions they're essentially volcanoes that kind of like kind of like empty the whole magma chamber and then it collapses on itself and it produces like a really big kind of like hole and kind of like destroys the volcano so an example in well i'll say recent times a lot like we've had um um krakatoa um in the 1883 eruption that was kind of like defined as a caldera one because it basically blew the whole volcano apart um, and it's formed a volcano in its place called Anak Krakatoa. Another example of these calderiform eruptions, yes, Yellowstone was these was like one of these kind of things. And there's another one in like Italy called Campi Falgrei, which is actually near Vesuvius. Um, so it's like a double, double whammy of risk um, oh, wow. it, for Naples because you have this like caldera forming kind of eruption. And actually, if we've satellite images, you could kind of like see because it, it's kind of like on the bay of Naples, so you could kind of like see. Kind of like a sort of like semicircle that's like kind of like the extent of that old volcano um and there's other places in the world that have these kind of like caldera things so caldera ones there there were like not in our lifetime but like millions of years going out the pleistocene and even further back they formed these like really big eruptions that really did impact like the whole world and yeah, I mean, then, yeah, I mean, I, mean, that's, <laughs> I know. Well, so all I'm I, like, I'm learning so much and, and it's like sparking for me. Like, I think I need to read more. Of, like, I want to read now <laughs> a, a lot about volcanoes. And and I think that it's not unusual, right, that I'm fascinated. I think people are fascinated by eruptions. Well, like I remember being in Costa Rica and Arenal volcano was flowing at, at mm-hmm. that time mm-hmm. and, and it was really beautiful. So, so there's this sort of mixture of, of awe and, and beauty mm-hmm. and fascination mm-hmm. while also lots of people seem to ignore the dangers and the very human cost of people living in these hazard zones. Mm-hmm. And so recent, so recently there was the eruption as, as we were mentioning in Iceland. Okay. So here's how uh, like an Icelander will probably not <laughs> agree with this, but, uh, I mean, better than me. <laughs> 
Fiac or Fiac. I'm not sure if it's it. like, but, but that's, and then there's the, uh, so that's the, my attempt at Icelandic. Uh, apologies to all Icelanders. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, and then there's the one uh, happening on, on St. Vincent. And before we talk about what's going on there in, in a lot of detail and, and what's happening for people there in particular, both of these eruptions were precipitated by, um, I guess the term is earthquake swarms mm-hmm. or like lots of little earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So why, why are earthquakes good predictors of when there might be an eruption? Just from a geological standpoint and a, mm-hmm. and a physical like sciences, I'm kind of interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so these kind of like volcanic earthquakes that are they are different from the plate tectonic kind of like earthquakes. So there's no kind of like I mean we get what we call volcanic tectonic earthquakes, but these volcanic swarms that um, volcanic earthquake swarms that happen are mainly related to basically it shows the movement of magma under, um, below the surface essentially. Because what happens is uh, as magma tries its force its way to the surface, it basically pushes its surrounding rock out to sides and basically these cracks that the magma forms basically cause these earthquakes it actually gives us a really good indicator of where that magma is going that's why it was very well documented for um the one in iceland that's still called pronounced um it's a it's it really just shows if you get like a time series of that it actually shows a really nice progression of that actually that magma moving and that was the same that happened for the previous eruption of Valdebunga as well like you got this really lovely like kind of like just like just see these earth um, these earth swarm earthquake swarms kind of like moving along until of course they erupted in the fissure um so they're essentially these earthquakes are really great indicator that maybe this magma is trying to find its way to its surface and we can actually for systems um that for fish eruptions in particular we can definitely like track where this magma is going um so that's why they're a really good indicator to have um to know that something is up and that's not something that was available historically mm. um right and and so in a way this can be really helpful for mitigating risk and and danger to people now What's happening in um, La Soufrière? It's a stratovolcano. Is that correct? Yes. And and it has a history of mm-hmm. of significant damage. You mentioned at the beginning your grandfather the 1979 eruption, and I think mm-hmm. before that it was 1902 to 1903. Mm-hmm. It was quite mm-hmm. extensive and long. Yes. Yes. Um, so, is there anything that makes this particular volcano really dangerous? Uh, what makes that's so very dangerous is the fact that people live around it. I think that's good. well, definitely the main difference between what's happening in Iceland now compared to Lassafrea. And also because it produces these kind of like big kind of like explosions. Like at the beginning of the uh, activity on around about, was it 9th of April? I mean, it feels so long ago now, but 9th of April, it was, uh, it was to the extent of 1902, which both 1902 and the beginning of the eruption, they were sublinean. So they were pretty big. And I described St. Vincent and Lassafrere as like a, a tiny island with a big volcano on it. Because essentially Lassafrere dominates the entire northern half of the island. And there's around about 20,000 people that live in the vicinity of that volcano. And that's what really makes it dangerous. But it also produces these um, kind of more severe volcanic hazards compared to the ones happening in Iceland. 
So the most severe hazards that produces are called LAHARs, so these are volcanic mud flows. And that's essentially what the problem is happening right now as they enter the rainy season. So essentially these are, so uh, these happen at uh, snow-capped volcanoes, and they do occur in Iceland, but they're called Jökulalps because they're associated with the glaciers. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of the uh, volcanoes in Iceland are capped by glaciers. Um, so you can get these in snow-capped areas or glacier-capped area, um, volcanoes, but also when it's associated with rainfall as well, or Crater Lake as well. Um, so essentially, it's basically loads of volcanic material and basically gets mixed in with water or ice melts um, or something like that. And basically... Basically, these these flows are not your, like your typical mud flows. Like these are very erosive things because if you imagine like uh, so like all the volcanic material that comes out of the of the volcano, it's essentially really tiny pieces of rock essentially. So imagine all that plus like the bigger things that it picks up. It basically erodes kind of like channels and forms gullies and whatnot. And then we have really high kind of like bulldozing power as well. And what's dangerous about those is that they can happen before if there's a crater lake or there's ice melt during and then can sometimes happen years afterwards. Um, and there's evidence of that at last of that it happened about one or two years later in 1812 eruption. And a really classic example that people may know of was um, in the Philippines, uh, Mount Pinatubo 1991 eruption. Lajas continued like years after the eruption actually ended because of the um, typhoon season that was happening um, year upon year. Another hazard that produces probably one of the most deadliest is what we call pyroclastic density currents. And the old term that people might be familiar with is pyroclastic flows. Essentially, these things, most of the time, these are due to uh, um, ash column collapse and they're gravity driven. There are some exceptions to this. For example, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, where this was due to a lateral blast and and destruction of part of Mount St. Helens edifice. But uh, the ones at La Soufrière, for example, these are due to ash column collapse. And essentially with these, are, these are really basically really hot and really fast flows. They've got hot material and the hot gases. And again, kind of like Lohars, they pick up anything in the path. And what's really dangerous about these is that they kind of can be kind of unpredictable. So they can channel down river valleys. They can just blanket flanks of volcanoes. They can flow uphill and surmount topography and they could flow over water as well. So these things are really, really dangerous. And basically these are the things that destroyed um, the, the capital of Plymouth in Montserrat, the capital of St. Pierre in Martinique, and also were involved in destroying Pompeii and Herculaneum in 79 AD, eruption um, of Vesuvius. So these are very dangerous things and they're unsurvi- unsurvivable essentially. Um, although I do have actually uh, found evidence that some, some people did actually survive one in 1902. And I can talk about, because I, I just that the story is just fascinating what I picked up. Yeah, these things are really dangerous. And that's what makes the last affair particularly dangerous. I do want to hear that story. Um, first, though, I don't want to ignore what's happening for people right now. And you mentioned that about 20,000 people live in that that zone of, 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 is that, so with respect to the whole <laughs> island, is it, is it a threat to the entire island or particularly that northern part where about 20,000 people live and what's happening to them now? Where are they and and mm-hmm. how are um, uh, and what can people maybe do to help? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, 
it's so in terms of these podcasts, Jesse Carson Lahars, they they are many quite localized kind of like uh, events. So those in the red zone, it's a red zone mainly because of these Lahars and podcasts at Jesse Currents. So they had to get out as soon as possible. And luckily for us, they got out a day before this actually started to actually explode. So like, seriously, like I, I had heart palpitations from that. Um, but the rest, the, but the whole island will actually be impacted by ashfall, uh, particularly when these ash cones are particularly bigger and due to the influence of the wind's direction as well. What's happened to these um, people is that most of them have gone to the southern parts of the island, particularly in the green and yellow zones, which are considered rather safer. And um, they're either in public or private or government-sponsored shelters, essentially. Some have gone to neighbouring islands. Um, not a lot, though, because we have to add the added dimension of a pandemic. So you have to be very careful with, um, you know, controlling yeah. COVID on different islands as well as on St. Vincent. Um, some have gone to uh, some of the Grenadines Island, Northern Grenadines, which belongs to St. Vincent. Um, so like Betquay and Mustique, um, for example. And essentially, that's where most people are. Uh, and this is characteristic in previous eruptions as well. They've either gone south of the island or they've gone to neighbouring islands or to the Grenadines because that's basically the safest place people can be. And it is always hard to, for one, to keep track, but also to just actually be away from home for an uncertain period of time. And what people can do to help now is that there's quite a lot of... Um, kind of like donations, not not just financial, but like practical kind of like um, supplies. Like um, one thing that's happening in the UK is we're trying to get lots of like sanitary products and like um, canned non-perishable foods over there because like for one thing, imagine being a volcanic eruption and then <laughs> it's your time of the month. Like that's, right. that's not great. Um, so you need those kind of like supplies in like nappies and like baby food as well because, you know, your life goes on and then the volcanic eruptions happen and you're pretty much your life is just disrupted. So you don't actually have the time to get those kind of like provisions. Um, so I can't, I can't tell you at the top of my head, but I know there's some uh, Twitter threads going around with like people like showing where kind of like uh, donation points in the US are propping up. And these donation points are basically coming um, out of organization of the Caribbean diaspora basically coming together. Uh, so there's actually quite a large population of St. Vincent Vincentians in New York and in Canada and in Vancouver. Um, so these are kind of like key locations, but there's also other locations as well that is still propping up. So I can send you that information um, and you can put it in links and whatnot. Absolutely. Um, we'll put it in the show notes and, mm-hmm. and also um, make sure that, that the podcast tweets about it mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. To, to spread the word, to get people help. Yeah, um, because even though it's not as destructive as it was at the 8th of April for about the first week, it's still an ongoing thing. And people are still in the shelters because we're so uncertain when this is going to end. So those donations will really basically help people to stay in those shelters because, you know, there's research into this that if the shelters are not, you know, in, you know, inadequate kind of like supply or can't look after these people, this is when people will go back. Um, when they really should because it's so dangerous that we don't know what's going to happen uh, next. Right. So having those donations really does help to basically just make sure people are like fed and clothed and stay as, you know, as 
functional as possible, given right. all the circumstances. Well, absolutely. And and then, of course, as you mentioned, the added layer of, of a global pandemic is just mm-hmm. making things like this worse. You mentioned the, the survivorship story about 1902, mm-hmm. and, and I want to link back to that and hear that story because from reading your work, I, I got the impression that the 1902 eruption lasted a long time. And so I don't know if we're in that situation, which makes providing mm-hmm. supplies and continuing donations um, mm-hmm. even more important. Um, how long did that last and and how on earth did someone or anyone survive that kind of, of eruption at that mm. time? So this eruption in 1902 um, started 7th of May, so the anniversary is not that far off, um, but it basically went on for 10 months to, ne- to the March the following year. Um, and basically this eruption has happened currently, it's being kind of like being compared to 1902 because it's on that kind of like scale. So essentially how why it went on for 10 months is because it had these episodes where it kind of like exploded and then went quiet for a bit, but then exploded and then went quiet for a bit. And this is the pattern we're seeing currently as well. So this is why we think that actually this might be might be longer um, than a than a month because just that is uncertain. But in terms of people survived, so there's a there's a, a place in St. Vincent in the northern part of the island um, on the north windward side, as it's called today, called Orange Hill. In 1902, this was Orange Hill Estate. It was a plantation, but not under slavery conditions. But it was still pretty bad conditions. And basically, there was lots of um, workers, uh, labourers on the island, and um, on these plantations. And basically, they were very low wages, so they had really little choice to like work elsewhere. And that's one of the dimensions of risk, I kind of like say that. It's because they couldn't go anywhere else because they needed that money. Um, that kind of like made these people at risk. But what happened was, I think... I think it was the 7th of May. So when it starts, 7th of May, different compared to 2021, we had pyroclastic density currents happening on the same day we had the first explosion. So this was big. Like, it was like, I mean, I only read kind of like accounts of what happened, but this was been like really terrifying that like you think that this this is the end of this island kind of like kind of like scale so what happened was is uh, there were 30 people mainly um farmers mainly farmers and people who worked on the plantation um they hid in the rum cellar of the manager's house the manager and the wife were also in there the workers were black they were white I think you can see where I'm going with this. So basically what happened is this pyrocastle density current flowed down the entire flank of La Sofre on the eastern flank, flowed entirely over. It went over to Orange Hill Estate. It flowed over the house. And a survivor of that described, he's saying that the air was so thick we found it hard to breathe. We started gasping for air and wanting for water. Um, but then I could hear foof, foof, foof. Um, and then it came, um, it kind of like, it was just like, it was just suffocating. Like it was like the smells were, smell like rotten eggs because of course sulfur. And like, you could just basically hear this current going over them. But <laughs> about five minutes earlier, the manager and his wife left the cellar 
because they could not bear to be in the same room as these black people. And they essentially died. Their bodies were found on the veranda of the man of the uh, manager's house. But these 30 people, they stayed put and they stayed at cellar and they survived. And I got that's how I got that account. And I was sat there when I read that, I was like, wow. Like that is so lucky because these things, like I said, they're very hot. And like he was like saying that they were gasping for air, they were like struggling to breathe, and that like, they really wanted water. And I was just like, for the, the manager and his wife, it's like if they just managed to put up with it for five more minutes, they would have survived. And it's just like, oh, like yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that could be said about that. Um, yeah, <laughs> but fortunate for those people uh, where they were and that they mm-hmm. stayed. And, you know, this touches on a lot of your work on the historical and cultural context of mm-hmm. this island, notably slavery, colonialism, and how that has disproportionately impacted, not mm-hmm. just in the past, right, mm-hmm. but to this day, mm-hmm. people and the way they have to experience different hazards in relationship to this volcano. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Mm. Yeah. So basically, if if I had my own way, the conclusion of the thesis would have been colonialism made things worse. Full stop. Uh, basically, before European contact, uh, the indigenous peoples of the islands, they actually lived south of the island, away from the volcano. And it's interesting because there was a very old um, French dictionary that translated the indigenous language to French. And when I looked through this dictionary, they had no words to describe volcanoes or volcanic hazards, but they had words for like flooding and hurricanes and landslides and other hazards. So I thought that was quite interesting. So like they did have the words that we would kind of know how to describe a volcano and its hazards, but they knew something was different to live away from it. Right. Um, and it was once um, the islands were seceded to Britain following the Seven Years' War. So actually, this is quite interesting how St. Vincent actually has connection to American kind of like um, war history. So what happened was is it was basically the islands was in the interests of French and British empires. And during the Seven Years' War, it was seceded to Britain. In between that, the French kind of like managed to get the island back. But then after the American Revolution, it was seceded back to Britain. And basically what happened here was during that time, between the first occupation and second, they basically forced the indigenous people to move to the north where this volcano is. And what happened was when they first got it, they started making their sugar plantations. So also to meet the demands of the British Empire to produce sugar. And they were growing their plantation in the south and they were like, we're not getting as much sugar as we hoped to get. So they started to actually survey the land in the north. Um, and what happened here was that the indigenous peoples, they when this happened, when they like first would like move to the north, they were like, okay, fine, you have your land down in the south, we'll have ours, and we won't bother each other. Basically, it was the colonists that were bothering the indigenous peoples. And this actually resulted in the first and second Carib Wars um, because the, the, the indigenous peoples were like, well, we could obviously fight you because you keep coming into our lands that you've, gave, you've given us, even though it's our islands. Right. Um, 
basically after the end of the Second War, quite a lot of them were exiled to present-day Honduras. And a lot of the descendants live across Central America now, essentially. And um, basically, they started producing their sugar plantations in the north, like some of the biggest ones as well, because they had a lot of land. And of course, really fertile. So they got lots of yields from that. So, so the, so the um, colonists were like, this is great. We're getting, our, we're getting our money. We're getting our sugar with the help of slaves. Um, and basically, this basically put that entire population in the north at risk because the people could not leave those plantations because obviously they did not have a say in where they could work. They were also being forced to work these plantations. And that basically put them at risk because they couldn't leave. They had no power. And then that was during 1812 where um, actually it was slaves who died, but no white people because the white people obviously left, but they left the slaves behind because that's just 1812. I still got more to go. Yeah, um, no, this is a, <laughs> look, this is really important and people need to have a deep understanding and awareness of these social issues because they're still going on today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, keep going. So, yeah. So basically, uh, at the end of that eruption, basically it was um, what we would kind of think happens in disasters. So this is like disaster scholars think this, that in order to be best prepared for the next eruption, we need to change our social systems because disasters are a social construct. They're not, uh, this is why I don't call them natural disasters because they're not natural. Disasters are human made things. It's because basically like the term, even from undergrads, I stick with me that my lecturer said it was that it's not a hazard without the people, essentially. Right. Um, so bear that in mind when I talk about this. But they did not basically change anything about what they were doing after that eruption. So essentially for the plantation kind of agricultural sector, they were just wanted to replace the slaves they lost and they wanted to get back on their feet as soon as possible because they still had to meet the demands of the British Empire. So they did change financial systems, social, they didn't change anything. And in fact, if we move forward to 1902, two estates that were destroyed in 1812, they basically reappeared in 1902. And they were destroyed again in 1902. So basically that's like, they were not, they were either ignoring kind of like the lessons that should have been learned in 1812. All ages um, willingly took that risk because of the benefits from the fertile soil and the yields that they would get. In 1902, it was a little bit more complex. So this was after slavery ended, but it was still under colonial rule. And white people still were basically the dominant kind of like uh, political and social kind of like powerhouses of the island. And essentially this time, a lot of um, descendants of these slaves, they were farmers and they wanted to, you know, have a life for themselves. They wanted to make a life for themselves and want livelihood and whatnot. But because of this small number of white people had control over kind of like the economy, they basically were forcing these people to still work on these plantations because like it was very hard for anyone to like learn new skills to try and you know be you know make better for themselves because basically options were so limited for them because of the color of their skin and 
so this is why quite a lot of people died because they were forced to, again, still be in the same areas that their enslaved ancestors were and they could not really leave. And once this, if they did survive, everything they had was destroyed. And they, they, they struggled to get the help because again, the color of their skin compared to their white counterparts that got probably too much financial help essentially for not really being that impacted as much as their black counterparts. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, so it literally, it was colonialism and colonial racism that really, really made it, that really diverted how, you know, depending on the color of your skin, how you actually recovered from this 10 month eruption that went on, on and off. But there was also like lots of politics involved as well um, because, uh, well, kind of politics, but also racism. So what happened is because um, the governor of the island in 1902, he basically, he, he could not deal with this at all. Like from the start, well, for one thing, he conveniently had an appointment in St. Lucia and did not leave St. Lucia for the entire eruption. And he basically left the whole crisis in charge of six councillors and actually, there's actually some really angry letters from the councillors being like, why are you not here? You are the leader of this island. You need to be here because leaders actually are really important in a crisis. I mean, you can see across the world which countries are like faring better because they have good leadership. Absolutely. I will not, I will not name any names. Me neither. Uh, <laughs> but basically, leadership really counts. And basically, he was basically given orders to these six people by letter, or note by telegram, which just doesn't make things any better. What was happening was, is um, because they were like, they were like, thought there's going to be a famine because they really had no idea how long it's going for. They had no idea how long they would have to, you know, keep feeding and giving dolls to the people that were displaced from this eruption. And you actually, so it was kind of like some kind of like weird kind of like backhanded stuff going on where he was like making deals with people in Jamaica and Dominica plantations to like receive people from St. Vincent to go work there. So he was basically, what was happening is, is that they were threatening people. It's like, you go to Jamaica and Dominica, so we don't have to look after you anymore. But people in Jamaica and Dominica will look after you because you got a job lined up for you on right. the plantation. Yay. So, like, there was, like, it obviously it was not, like, over threatening like at gunpoint but it was like we will take away your daily dolls and your provisions if you do not leave the island kind of like situation uh, that's basically threatening <laughs> you can't yeah. threat you can't threaten <laughs> to take away people's basic physical needs and mm. call that not threatening right like mm. i mean you have no choice you've, you've yeah. taken you've taken the choice away from people they don't yeah. want to leave their homes they want to they want to yeah. stay um yeah so but the way he was trying to, the, the governor and his councils were trying to write, they'd be like, look, this is like, this is full of the goodwill of the British Empire. Like, we're helping you here, sort of thing. But like, luckily, like quite a lot of people saw through this and thought, no, this is a threat. <laughs> right. And like some people, they did stay, stay, stay the ground. And unfortunately, they did get those provisions taken away from them. But they were like, no, this is our home, particularly indigenous people that were still on the island, um, obviously in smaller numbers. But they were like, we need help to go back to our lands. You can't just take away our provisions because we are not complying to what you're telling us. And yeah, it was, that's definitely the, like one of the, the eruptions that angered me the most. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm wondering, 
have things changed? Those people who are displaced now, about 15 or 16,000, maybe more mm-hmm. people in the current eruption, mm-hmm. what is what is is i imagine and i don't know but i imagine that the first of all the hazard risk is still unequal mm-hmm. and that there will likely be disparities in the recovery effort mm-hmm. for people that have been displaced from the north is that is that still the case in St. Yeah, Vincent? so so most of the people in the north are mainly still the demographic of farmers um, but the difference between Today's eruption and in 1979 is that they will get way more help to get back on their feet, whereas they won't be left behind in 1902 and 1812, um, essentially. So there will be disparities, but they will get way more help to get back their their livelihoods. Um, And that's definitely the the thing that they will need to get back on their feet. They'll they'll need help rebuilding their livelihoods, their homes that have been destroyed. Like They'll need their help. But luckily... In 1979 and today, they will get that help that they just need. Good. Now, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of this, we're talking about hazard and risk management, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and, and we often think of volcanoes as destructive, but something that you said was that these areas, so they, the indigenous people basically had their land stolen twice. First, mm-hmm. we take you and move you to the north, and then we realize, oh, the lands are f- more fertile up there, mm-hmm. so we're going to take it again. <laughs> yeah. Because that's is to our benefit, but but so mm-hmm. this is one of those what we call ecosystem services that volcanoes mm-hmm. can provide, right? The fertile mm-hmm. soils that allow yeah. a really rich agricultural, um, you know, yield to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ecosystem services are basically benefits that we derive from uh, natural processes, air, water are some of those, mm-hmm. you know, kind of big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the ecosystem services that volcanoes provide that people may not think about in terms of physical that are not physical mm-hmm. Services like fertile soils. What are some other services that they provide? Yeah, so uh, it's things that like you immediately don't think about, but then when you think about, that makes sense. So one is like uh, the aesthetics. Like when then you know, you know, I suppose even when they're erupting, they are very beautiful things to look at, and of course that's you know that's just it's just amazing how what they look like and this actually leads to like inspires people so in this inspiration it can be like arts like um i talked about in my paper to heritage um dark geo cultural heritage that inspires like arts and particularly vesuvius inspired art and film for like since ever right (laughs) um and yeah just because of just just what it looks like and what it's done um it can also provide a sense of place and just basically like no this is like this is my volcano this is you know represents my people sort of thing and that's a very powerful thing another one is that it can it obviously it provides kind of like the knowledge systems um so obviously like in earth science we learn about volcanoes um but kind of like these crazy situations like for example what's happening now that this this will be probably used as an exercise in a number of years to actually teach people in emergencies and even volcanologists like what do you do when this happens sort of thing so this actually will train people and educate people and of course students as well 
another one is the the cultural heritage um so it just it will just really connect and ground people to be like no this is where i'm from and this is why kind of like thing because of this volcano and there's other stuff as well that i can't think of on the top of my head but it's definitely more cultural kind of like that intangible stuff that you can't see well and and really that link to heritage is is in a way right because of your connecting to your grandfather how you how much it shaped you. And, and so one of the things that I also thought was really interesting in your, in your um, paper on geo heritage and linking culture and geological processes was Mm -hmm. how do you, how does developing um, this geo heritage help with outreach education and even um, mitigating hazards and risks and ultimately even recovery of an area? So geoheritage is just, you know, like the geological and geomorphical features of a landscape. And the basis of it is it helps to educate people in like, this is how the earth works. And this is how these systems will work. For volcanoes, it's not just that, not just, you know, for education, for schools, but also, like I said, for these um, emergency practitioners. It kind of just like brings people together and it is mainly education at the end of the day and just you know showing people that you know the even though there's dark kind of like history to these places that in the right appropriate manner they can actually teach us so much and how to avoid these things happening again and that's definitely what i believe has happened today uh st vincent because we we know about 1902 and how bad that went um so we kind of learned from that um and that kind of like was built on from 1979 as well, where no one died in 1979. Okay. Um, and that was mainly due to the communication between scientists and the government and also just people promptly leaving when told to. And that's happened again. Again, like, for example, the communication between the scientists um, at the University of West Indies Seismic Research Centre and the government, particularly the Prime Minister, Ralph Gonzales, like it was so good. It was just so good. And it actually helped the fact that a Vincentian was talking to the prime minister because he was actually from the island, Professor Richard Robertson. And um, that really clear like communication and make sure, you know, explain things clearly as possible without, you know, being heavy in the scientific jargon and answering questions that the prime minister and others in that press conference had. So like, for example, I don't know if you know that so basically on the 8th of April, Basically, what happened was why this press conference was called was that the new dome that was there that was um, growing, it basically kind of did something different. That's when the scientists were like, we need to call a press conference. Now, the Disaster and Emergency Management Act for St. Vincent and the Grenadines was activated, which essentially meant it was mobilizing evacuation centers again and prepared because they think that an eruption may happen in the next 48 hours or no, 72 hours. Right. Uh, but basically, and after, like, about an hour after that press conference ended, another one was held because essentially we had there was a camera at the top uh, on the crater rim and looking at this on this at this dome. Basically, what happened is a crack formed in the dome and the gas plume, like the sustained gas plume, happened. And basically, the scientists were like, "No, we need to hold an evacuation because something's going to happen pretty soon." Right. And essentially, less than twenty-four hours, almost twenty thousand people left that area like because they were told to leave so they're like we're going (laughs) 
And essentially then, yeah, so less than 24 hours later, it exploded. I, I just have to say this, like, just like we have a time, like, talk about this, like, seriously, the, the scientists need to get all the medals and all the awards because they essentially save thousands of people's lives right. by doing that. Cool. Well, and, and what's wonderful, and I just want to remind everyone, I'm talking to a very brilliant scientist yourself, um, Dr. Jasmine Scarlett, a <laughs> historical and social volcanologist. And I, this is so such an important conversation. Basically, the fact that people listened to the scientists is also right. Yes. Like, because a lot of times, I, I'm sure this will resonate with you. We're we're saying things, mm-hmm. and nobody is paying attention because it's not convenient politically, economically, socially, yes. all yes. of these other things. So, fantastic that people listened. And I, I feel like uh, using what we know, the idea that people could learn from the past and do something differently is a wonderful achievement. It seems mm-hmm. to be rare in yeah. the human experience <laughs> yes. from my observations. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so this is wonderful. But as mm-hmm. we mentioned, I just want to also circle back. People are still displaced. It is still yes. a problem and we yes. still need to support and help people mm-hmm. so that they don't go back um, too soon into an area that is um, high risk. Speaking of, you know, this idea of, of, of geo heritage, and I really um, appreciate how you describe that so that people get a sense of what that means. <clears throat> You know, I was reading your paper um, that kind of gave the case studies of Mount Vesuvius um, and uh, a couple other locations mm-hmm. uh, as examples where mm-hmm. there was this sort of rich sort of geo tourism um, that really integrated the history, uh, and and this is and Iceland has become very popular because of the geology and the volcanoes and uh, and glaciers and um and they they have an industry basically a tourism industry built around the volcanoes both of those places and for iceland there's this rich literary sort of saga history and then of course in italy you discuss pompeii um, Mm -hmm. and how it's linked to roman history Do you see geotourism as an important development for St. Vincent and the Grenadines that can similarly have those positive impacts? And and what would be the benefit of that? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And um, I definitely think of this eruption, people who have been following it, they'll be like, I want to go there. And actually before the eruption, there was quite a good um, ecotourism kind of like sector happening. And the island is actually quite popular for hikers because essentially not only have you got this northern like big volcano north, there's actually an extinct kind of like chain of um, extinct volcanic chain like running like in this like sort of like it's performed it, like essentially it's like a spine for like St. Vincent like there's a spine of like ancient kind of like um, extinct volcanoes and that's like really popular with hikers like like you know like the hardcore hikers they'll do the whole trail from south to north which I think is madness but like fair play to them <laughs> right but also because of like what's really beautiful about St. Vincent and not only St. Vincent but the other volcanic islands is that it's it's just tropical rainforest and obviously that attracts really like you know endemic species like there's an endemic parrot called saint vincent parrot that lives on saint vincent you can't find it anywhere else in the world and that lives in the tropical rainforest in the in, in these volcanic areas and um 
yeah, like it, it will, like it has done, and it definitely will after uh, once things are safe to do so. It people will definitely like want to, you know, go to this island and everything like that. So it, it will. I don't know, obviously, how long into the future, but it definitely might boost the the economy a bit in terms of the eco and geo tourism. I hope that there will be uh, an an interest and an emphasis in people also understanding the historical and societal impacts in association with the volcanoes, not just from a sort of physical aesthetic. And as an animal person, I now, after you've told me about this parrot, very worried, like how, what, what happens to the animals? Do we have any historical information from the previous eruptions about how animals cope with the, the volcano? No, we don't. And I don't know why that is, but I definitely see with this eruption, there is some kind of like, I did see like a, like a local TV interview with someone who, who, who works. I can't, I think they were like an ecologist or something. I can't remember the top of my head, but he was talking about how he was worried about the St. Vincent part and the St. Vincent parrot, um, because they do live like on the slopes of that's the fair in the rainforest as well as the other parts of the rainforest. Um, so they're quite worried about the parrot. Um, but about the parrot, it's quite elusive. You like you can't really see it. Like you can hear it sometimes, but you can never see it. So I'm like, I I, I don't know where are you finding this parrot. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh. But yeah, so like no, there's not really any records in relation to the animals, which is. I suppose it's interesting in itself, really, because like, there's rich wildlife on the island, but it's not, it's actually not well documented, actually, the biodiversity of that island. And that's just because it's not, it's, it's under-researched and it's underfunded. That's um, well, that's fascinating because clearly if there is a rich biodiversity, then there have been previous eruptions. Mm. I mean, at least in many areas when there are <clears> earthquakes, <throat> uh, a lot of times the animals know this early and they may move to other areas i'm just sort of mm-hmm. like fascinated about for the parrot like where could it go mm-hmm. um i mean at least probably, fly, yeah, I suppose, so. <laughs> yeah i would say it probably have gone like more south of the island but you know it's you know the, the like under research like for example a friend of mine who also did research for saint vincent they were saying that there's snakes on the island but it's not well documented and i'm like there's snakes on the island like i did not know <laughs> <laughs> right like that's wait i thought this whole time there were no snakes there yeah no, she was like no i, I saw two it's like you saw two like i saw none <laughs> so like it literally like that's how like under research the biodiversity of the island is like i didn't even know there were snakes on the island so there's a lot to be um, learned and discovered about St. Vincent and the Grenadines. What would you like to see change about people's understanding, not just about volcanoes in this area, but the history and the, and the people that live in this area? I would say that in terms of the people and the volcanoes, it's, it is a history of struggle. And it did happen when it started with European contact. Before European contact, the indigenous population in the Lesser Antilles, they are the Kalanago, they still exist today. Um, they lived pretty happily with, um, like across these islands. And they actually were very well connected as well. Like they had these canoes that they would actually use on the Caribbean Sea just to go between island and island and community to community. And uh, these volcanoes, like even though they're not as active as... Um, other ones around the world they they are active volcanoes like most of them there's around about 30 
active um, volcanoes across the Eastern Caribbean volcanic arc. And that shapes these islands and it shapes the indigenous people. And of course, once we've had European contact and these indigenous peoples were um, kind of like displaced and forgotten about, the Creole kind of like society that's formed across the Caribbean, the Eastern Caribbean, it is tied to the volcanoes, whether they are more active or not. So that's the Friends St. Vincent is one of the most active in the Caribbean. But that's not to say that the volcanoes in Dominica are not as, are just as active. Because in geological terms, an active volcano is one that's erupted at least once in the last 10,000 years. There's quite a lot of active volcanoes across the Caribbean because these have erupted at least once in the last 10,000 years. And yeah, that shapes the, the, like the islands and the fertile soil and just the, the, probably the, di- the biodiversity, but we don't know that much because it's not well researched. Right. Um, but it shapes everything about how you live uh, with these dangerous environments because of course let's not forget we get hurricane season that impacts the Caribbean year upon year as well um, and that's one of the particular worries for St. Vincent at the moment so even though St. Vincent they mostly most of the time they they don't get direct hits or brushed by hurricanes but sometimes they do um, so that's another worry because that will generate more of these volcanic mud flows and cause more problems yeah like like the Caribbean it's it's got a rich history it's got complicated history it's got a dark history and I would say even from my own experience being a person of Caribbean heritage like we not only survive we do thrive as well like we have rich you know we have an amazing language <laughs> and of course most of it is just English or French or Spanish slang <laughs> but it's it's beautiful and I love it and even though like there's like island rivalry we still mm. love one another anyway like if that makes sense like you know yeah. we still you know like just between like football teams so you get like that rivalry or you know like you know American football teams like Sure. We still love each other at the end of the day. Like we still, that, that's what's happening today. Like the, the Caribbean, the wider Caribbean is really showing that even though, you know, we're not connected by blood, we're still connected by a common bond. And that is the fact that we are from the Caribbean. We are descended from slaves that were taken from Africa. We have survived and we have thrived, developed a culture that is our own. And we celebrate that and we'll come together to help our brothers and sisters. And that's that's what happens in the Caribbean when any disaster and any crisis happens. And that's, I, I put it into my thesis. So, I mean, you said you read chapter seven and chapter six. So you yeah. would have read that kind of bit when I was talking about this island kinship. Yes, yes, it, that it's local, yes. right? And yeah. and it's not necessarily blood related, yeah. that this sort of generalized kinship. I just got goosebumps. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's beautiful islands and beautiful people. And yeah, the volcanoes, they can be, you know, bad, uh, but at the same time, they're beautiful and, you know, they define... Who the people are? Well, I think there's so much that beautiful that is beautiful um, in everything that you've said, and um, you're an excellent writer too. I just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't make it all the way through the the dissertation, but I, I tried (laughs) because I, I really love what you have to say, and I feel really privileged that you were, um, you're here on the show, and I I know you're really busy, so I'm probably going to have to let you go soon, but I just wanted to shift a tiny bit, because you have this great blog, which um, I'll link to the show notes, mm-hmm. That expl- uh, and part of it 
and another paper that you've written um, mm-hmm. that I, is really great too is how volcanoes are um, represented in video games. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued by the idea that commercial video games. I mean, we're both interested in pedagogy. We're both interested. We're both in STEM, and and, and that you feel that there's this opportunity for. Mm-hmm them to have value in STEM education, developing social interactions, which I thought was really interesting, and also skills. So how, how could, how does this, how do you see, you know, potentially video games applying to understanding sort of the geosciences? Yeah, so with commercial kind of like video games, so that these popular video games that sell like millions of copies around the world, they're not 100% accurate. And we acknowledge that, like we, I mean, we we did a scientific investigation to see how accurate these volcano and these volcanic systems were in these video games, and they're not 100%. But we can turn that into a learning opportunity. So we can, for example, one of our examples we gave was that we could set a video game as an assignment for students in volcanology or geology, and we could get them based on like the the the, the teachings they've had so far, get them to see well, what is correct about what they're seeing or what isn't? And what? And then they could give reasons why it's correct or why it's not. And, of course, it could be up into their interpretation as well. So, like, it could be more accurate for someone but not for another person. And be like, that's okay because that's learning. And it just makes it more fun as well. Like, oh, my God, like, what my assignment was playing a video game. That's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, like, it could be better than writing an essay. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and they might learn more from doing that than writing an essay. Yeah, and because we talked about in the pedagogy that even like for me and my co co-author, we are gamers. We do like to play games and we we note that we can play a game for like a couple or three hours and not get distracted because we're just so, you know, immersed into that environment. So it's like this could actually grab people's students attention for longer than maybe a classroom setting can because it's just more entertaining and it's more interaction like if you're playing like a character you're like you're literally in the environment and you get to explore um of course not in every video game at your own pace but some video games you can play at your own pace and that's what we found very fascinating as well is that actually why is it they grab people's attention for longer like what is it about them and what, what keeps them like coming back to a um, person as well? So like, we were talking about like kind of like the subconscious kind of like learning that they get from these environments and what they learn. Um, because again, it, it goes back to our own experiences. Like we, we pick up probably useless information from playing games that don't benefit us in real life at all, but we learn it somehow just by playing these games. And it's like, what what is it about these games that, we can retain this information compared to other types of, well, learning essentially. And that's what we wanted to explore with this kind of like paper. It's like, what is it about these games? And yeah, so that's kind of like where we can see that potential is like, okay, so if you have a defined kind of like curriculum, maybe there is a situation where even it's like a class activity, maybe you can get everyone to like if you could get on the big screen somehow you can get everyone to like like oh what's that over there can you go over there sort of thing i want to look at that sort of thing and it can be like a group activity as well like there's the 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 possibilities are endless and i just think i mean video games cool we need we need to play more of them 
This has been uh, so wonderful talking to you again, Dr. Jasmine Scarlett, an amazing historical social volcanologist, really doing important work. And thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Thank you for having me. Listen, it's Mother's Day. And although flowers and cards are great, there's a better way to make your mom proud of you today to show her that she succeeded in raising a kind, cooperative, helpful, caring offspring that will leave this world better than how they arrived in it. La Soufrière is still a threat. It's still active and people are still in danger. Parts of the island affected are unrecognizable and people have lost everything. And as you heard from Dr. Scarlett, thousands are in shelters and in need of supplies. She reminds us that if people don't receive what they need, they will leave the shelters. Please help keep people safe by sending help to the people of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, because scientists have yet to decide that La Soufrière is going back to sleep. And here's something else interesting to consider. According to NASA, there are currently 45 active volcanoes on Earth at this very moment. And you can find the link to La Soufrère's activity in the show notes, which you can find on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. And please, if you're enjoying the show, subscribe and share it so others can find it and enjoy it too. Thanks for listening, everyone. And tune in next week for my conversation with Dr. Christy Biolsi, where we try to determine what is consciousness and do other species have it?